This Washington Post Live podcast is sponsored by Children's National Hospital and its new Clark Parent and Child Network, helping to improve the mental health and well-being of young children and families. You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the Post's newsroom to life on stage. As COVID-19 poses a new unexpected threat to maternal care, the mental and physical health of mothers and infants in the U.S. is top of mind. Representative Lauren Underwood joins the Post to discuss how to improve maternal health and early childhood outcomes in America. Let's listen. If you're just now joining us, I'm Paige Winfield Cunningham, and I'd like to welcome Representative Lauren Underwood to the program. She's a freshman Democrat from Illinois, the co-founder and co-chair of the Black Maternal Health Caucus, and sponsor of the Momnibus Act of 2020 to address disparities in healthcare between uh, white, white and Black women. Another interesting note about Representative Underwood is she is a registered nurse, and she also served as a policy advisor to HHS during the Obama administration. Congresswoman, thanks so much for joining us this morning. Hi, Paige. It's good to be with you. Um, I want to start off talking about disparities because, of course, this has been top of mind for a lot of people as we've um, thought about racism and racial disparities over the last couple of weeks. Um, and as I was looking up some of these stats, um, they kind of, they, they actually blew my mind to, to some of the disparities here. If you look at even college educated black women, they're actually 1.6 times more likely to die um, from pregnancy than a white woman without a high school diploma, um, as you know. And I'm wondering if you can just start off by giving us some thoughts about why that might be, what are the leading causes here? So black women in the United States are between three and four times more likely to die of a pregnancy-related cause than white women in our country. In my state of Illinois, black women are six times more likely to die. And that's after you control for factors like education level, income level, whether or not the woman had prenatal care or her insurance status, where she lives geographically. Um, you know, you can control for any number of factors and that disparity persists. What we do know is that there is nothing inherently wrong with the woman. And so it's our country, it's our society, it's the way that black women are treated within our healthcare system. And we know that black women um, often can walk into a, a clinic or a hospital, express that something's wrong or doesn't feel right and not be treated the same way because of implicit and explicit bias. Um, and, you know, there have been many researchers who are studying uh, the disparities, whether it's related to, um, you know, blood pressure causes or infection or mental health. There's individual, uh, you know, explicit causes of death, but the key is, is that in this maternal mortality space, this disparity has persisted, and it's been this way for my entire lifetime. I'm 33 years old, uh, and we've not seen, you know, large national initiatives to try to solve this problem, and that's why we started the Black Maternal Health Caucus. Well, and to your point um, about Black women feeling like their concerns aren't taken seriously enough, I know we've heard stories from uh, prominent people, Serena Williams' stories coming to mind where they were expressing concerns to her provider and they felt like they weren't listened or weren't heard. Um, do you have thoughts about kind of how we can improve that relationship and interaction between the patient and the doctor in those settings? 
Absolutely. So there's many different things we can do. We can, one, we have to change the culture of our healthcare system. And a one-time webinar or training is not going to do it, right? Uh, this is something where we have to embed in our providers that we need to listen and center that patient's experience. Um, train our providers to recognize their own implicit and explicit biases, right? Implic implicit is, I didn't know that I was treating one patient differently from another. Explicit is racism, right? Let's just make it plain. Um, and then, you know, we need to make sure that we have providers that reflect the diversity of the communities that they serve. We need to make sure that every woman truly has a choice in the kind of provider uh, that she can see, whether it's a gynecologist, an obstetrician, whether it's a midwife, a nurse midwife, or a certified midwife, whether that woman wants a doula to uh, assist with her birth and delivery or not, you know, like that kind of stuff is really important. And it all goes into that woman's experience in our healthcare system. Um, and so, you know, I would say we need to make sure that we are recruiting, training, um, and, you know, ensuring that every community across our country has a diverse set of providers. We need to make sure that these providers are trained to recognize their own biases um, and that there are accountability measures in place uh, for health systems that, you know, don't always um, course correct after there are uh, these kinds of disparities that are seen to persist within their system. So you have this Momnibus uh, Act, which I kind of love the name. Uh, my understanding is it's nine or so uh, pieces of legislation. Um, can you describe some of the ways that, that these, these different pieces are trying to address the overall issue? Yes, so the Momnibus is a suite of legislation. It's comprehensive to fill the gaps that uh, existing legislation had sort of missed. Uh, we've been talking a lot about expanding Medicaid coverage to a full year postpartum, right? Christy talked about it during her segment, and we were so pleased and excited that yesterday, the House of Representatives, for the first time since the Affordable Care Act passed, expanded Medicaid to a full year postpartum. It's huge. What a big accomplishment, but we know that there's other things that need to happen. We need to be investing in this perinatal workforce, uh, uh, solving some of the mental health challenges uh, that women face. And, you know, there's a lot of conversation about postpartum depression, but there's also, you know, anxiety, there's other mental health disorders, there's substance use disorders, and we need to make sure that there's a targeted focused effort on solving uh, those new moms challenges there and giving them the resources to do so. Uh, we have uh, legislation that deals with data collection and gaps in the data collection, incarcerated women, you know, there's women in our federal uh, prison system that are currently being shackled while delivering their babies. And, you know, obviously there are uh, negative outcomes, clinical outcomes associated with that practice. Uh, there are, uh, there's a bill focused on women veterans which is so important, supporting the community-based, community-led organizations that have been doing this work for so long. I mean, when we think about the progress uh, that gets made on a really specific localized level, it's often the community groups that have been doing this work. It's not necessarily driven by a governmental agency uh, or a large federal effort, right? And so we want to make sure that we are supporting those community-based organizations. There's a category in healthcare called social determinants of health nutrition, transportation, housing, right? And we wanna make sure that we are making critical investments in those social determinants as a way to make sure that we are preventing uh, these risk factors for maternal morbidity and mortality before they begin. Uh, again, this is a comprehensive 
suite of legislation, uh, digital tools, telehealth, all of that. And so the Momnibus is something that we introduced in March. Uh, Senator Kamala Harris leads the bill in the Senate, uh, and I introduced the Momnibus, the suite of bills in the House, but each individual item, each of the nine bills has also been introduced separately. Um, and, you know, so many of my colleagues in the House have been supportive. Many of these bills are bipartisan, and we're excited that they'll be able to get some consideration this year. Yeah, I wanted to ask a question on those lines, because as you know, uh, whenever Congress starts discussing healthcare policy, it often becomes very, very quickly derailed. Um, and I noticed that you do have some Republicans signed on to some of these measures. Um, but how important was you to was it to you to have bipartisan support? And do you think it, any of these pieces have a realistic chance of becoming law, you know, in the next, I guess, I guess before the election? Yes. So. Let's start out with the caucus. So the caucus was an idea between Congresswoman Alma Adams and I. Uh, she represents a community in North Carolina. We wanted to work on black maternal mortality and uh, we decided to give ourselves a name. Within a year, the caucus grew to over 100 members, bipartisan participation. And so that was the foundation on being able to craft legislation that would have support across the aisle. So for example, that Medicaid expansion that I talked about yesterday, that's the Helping Moms Act that's led by Robin Kelly. It passed unanimously off the Energy and Commerce Committee. I think that that is an item that will uh, be able to get some full consideration in the Senate, uh, certainly Republican support over there, and hopefully get signed into law, right? We're talking about safety saving moms' lives, it's critically important. Um, we have a bill to serve women veterans, and I, I introduced that with one of my Republican colleagues on the Veterans Affairs Committee, Mr. Billy Rockus, and you know, I'm really excited that he uh, has joined us on this piece of legislation, and I certainly think that this is one that would be you know, in good shape to pass out of the House and get over to the Senate and possibly get signed into law this year. Uh, the, I think it's the Moms Matter bill, that's Joe Kennedy's bill, uh, that addresses the mental health challenges uh, that moms in the postpartum period face that has uh, bipartisan support, right? And so we look towards those bills that uh, do have the bipartisan support where the coalition is already being built and we're working it on both sides of the aisle. Obviously, we have about six months left in this uh, Congress. And so there's a long list of legislation that we need to work on. Um, but I'm so pleased that maternal mortality continues to be at the forefront of this healthcare policy agenda where we are able to come together uh, and get things done. And quite frankly, this is an issue that really hadn't risen to, very, uh, to the highest levels of congressional agendas um, in prior Congresses. And so the fact that we're discussing these, this issue, identifying these solutions, and identifying vehicles to attach these bills into is something that uh, really gives me hope. You mentioned the idea of the social determinants of health. So uh, for the audience, when we're talking about that, we're talking about all of the aspects around somebody that can affect their health. So housing, access to transportation, access to good nutrition. And I know there's been more discussion around that, especially in the space of Medicaid in recent years. And how do you kind of equip the program to try to um, provide those aspects or improve those aspects of people's lives instead of only focusing on medical care. Um, do you see the Medicaid program moving in that direction at all? Um, and you know, do, do you, have, you know, what kind of an effect do the social determinants have on the development of young children? 
Yes. So it's really important that uh, for the states that did expand Medicaid, they take a look at their programs and explore some of the waivers uh, that would allow them to um, expand uh, their coverage opportunities and address some of these social determinants of health. There's real opportunities uh, to be creative. And I've had the opportunity, for example, to talk to some of the Medicaid managed care providers and encourage them uh, to think about ways that they can leverage um, their unique structure uh, to do innovative uh, things to improve the health status of the women that they serve. And we know that addressing these social determinants, whether it's connecting women uh, with nutritionists or dietitians for a visit to, to do some nutrition counseling, identify, you know, sources of, you know, good nutritious foods within their communities, things like that is incredibly important. Uh, we know that housing instability, transportation, you know, pollution, all these other social determinants of health um, certainly impact the mother's health and well-being, but also that child's, right? This is a key driver in health disparities uh, throughout, you know, our communities, not just limited to pregnant women and postpartum women. Um, and so this is a conversation that has long dominated uh, what we talk about in public health circles uh, for strategies to solve health disparities across the board, whether it's cardiovascular, cancer, uh, or maternal mortality. It's, it's critically important. Well, and of course, we've been talking a lot about mothers, but we know that fathers also play a huge impact uh, in, in the development of young children. Uh, can you talk a little bit about, about their role and whether that has an, can have an impact on um, maternal health and um, the prenatal period as well? Oh, certainly, right? Women need to have strong and supportive partners throughout from preconception to the postpartum period, right? It's critically important. Uh, and yet this legislation is specifically focused on the unique challenges that uh, the moms face because in our healthcare system, right? Think about COVID-19. And one of the things that emerged during COVID is that some women were having to deliver alone. And so if a woman is alone in the hospital or in her birthing center uh, for that delivery, that means sometimes that she is missing that advocate. And if something goes wrong, right, that she might be missing that critical individual who can uh, speak to the provider team, can, you know, plead for help. I think of uh, my friend Charles Johnson, his uh, wife Kira died after delivering um, their son. Uh, Langston and you know we have a bill named after Kira in the Momnibus and as he tells his story he talks about um, so so passionately and it, it's just you know heartbreaking the way that he was with her at every step of the way following up with the medical team continuing to ask them to perform the test and to prioritize the care that his wife needed and in their in their story right that healthcare system chose not to do that um, and so I think that the role of a father or a partner, it doesn't have to be the genetic father to the child. It could be, you know, a mom, a close friend. The doulas are so important, right, for, for doing that advocacy work in addition to supporting the mom during the delivery. And um, we need to make sure that uh, those folks are equipped, they are informed, and they're feeling empowered within the context of that larger healthcare system uh, to support the mom during every stage, preconception to postpartum. You recently wrote a piece in Essence Magazine about your own experience of losing a friend due to pregnancy complications. Can you tell us a little bit about that story and how that inspired you to act? Yes, my friend from graduate school, uh, Dr. Shalon Irving, uh, was a brilliant 
beautiful, excited, expectant mom to be. She um, had a PhD in sociology and gerontology. She was working at the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention in Atlanta as a Lieutenant Commander in the US Public Health Service Commission Corps. She had dedicated her career to ending health disparities. So she is a highly educated expert who did everything right, everything right. She gave birth to her beautiful baby girl, Soleil, in January of 2017. And three weeks later, she died due to complications from her pregnancy. And when I tell you that I was stunned and shocked, I mean, listen, I'm a nurse. We know the statistics about Black women dying. We know what the disparity looks like. Uh, but to, to see that happen to my friend, someone who um, knew the risks, and um, again, had done everything right, was just devastating. And so I knew that when I won this uh, election for Congress that I wanted to work on this issue. Um, and I knew that there would be such a rich opportunity to make a difference. Um, and what I did not expect, I have to tell you, is that we would find so many people that were interested in working with us, whether it's you know the Trump administration and the Surgeon General. Uh, whether it's firms like Uber and Lyft who want to talk about creative solutions to bringing to you know solve this transportation issue, speaking to the social determinants that we talked about before, whether it's you know provide uh, providers and large payers, right? Like these insurance companies, um, so many recognize the systemic nature of this problem, the maternal mortality crisis that we face, and they are interested in working together. So the idea of reaching across the aisle on Capitol Hill is important, but extending that universe of action is also critically important. I think that this is such a wonderful way to honor the life of my friend, Shalon, um, is to make sure that in our country, this doesn't happen again. Um, and I think that, you know, we have uh, a long ways to go, but I'm so encouraged by the progress. You also had mentioned that elements of your Momnibus uh, package address women veterans and women who are incarcerated. Can you talk a little bit about more about those two groups? Yes. So, you know, those two groups were key for us to address with the Momnibus because uh, you know, when we think about the federal government and the way that we directly provide care, you know, the VA, Veterans Affairs, uh, is, you know, a large federally run healthcare system. And we know that women veterans are the fastest growing segment of our veterans population. And so on our VA committee, we have been, uh, the House Veterans Affairs Committee, we've been working a lot to improve the quality of care that women receive within the VA system. You know, the VA right now, even in their mission statement, it talks about serving men. And so when we have these women across the lifespan, right, you know, newly, um, like really young women who are, you know, in their early 20s that become veterans and eligible for care. And then we have women in the cadet nurse corps from World War II that are still alive and getting care at the VA. We have a lot of work and opportunity to, to, to improve the care that they're receiving. So the maternal health portion of the VA care is critically important and often overlooked. Um, and so this was an opportunity to make sure that we're not seeing disparities persist make sure that they're getting culturally appropriate care um, and that there's like a seamlessness. Um, because oftentimes, right, if a woman happens to deliver in a VA facility, that child is not 
getting the care at the VA, right? So sometimes there's a little bit of a disconnect. Um, and you know we want to solve some of those barriers with respect to incarcerated women the federal bureau of prisons right um you know takes care of a lot of pregnant women and we know that there is a real need to ensure that it's not perpetuating these disparities uh there are you know i would say practices that would never ever 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 be acceptable um, in our community care environment that are happening in our prisons. And it's wrong. Women are experiencing extreme trauma and women are dying. And um, this is one of these circumstances where we say not on our watch. And so the incarcerated women's bill is being led by my friend Ayanna Presley. And um, you know it's an important measure that we need to get enacted into law. Wanted to ask you a question about the COVID pandemic. Um, I know that I have a few friends that are pregnant and were telling me that, you know, they hadn't actually been to the doctor the way they normally would have. I had a friend who wasn't actually able to make it in until her 20 week ultrasound. Um, mm -hmm. And of course, she had virtual check ins with her doctors. Um, but are you concerned that maternity care is suffering at all um, during the pandemic? Yes. You know, I have spoken to providers that told me, for example, that. They wanted to shift so many of their expectant moms to these virtual visits, uh, but everybody couldn't afford a blood pressure cuff. And if you haven't been diagnosed with preeclampsia, then you know oftentimes insurers will not pay for that blood pressure cuff because there's no clinical need, right? But what we want to do is prevent someone from getting uh, pregnancy-related high blood pressure, uh, because we know that that is such a key um, risk factor to, you know, maternal morbidity and mortality, right? And so there are challenges in this COVID-19 space with transitioning to telehealth, with making sure that women are getting that kind of support that they need, and quite frankly, recognizing that that televisit, that telehealth exchange is not necessarily the evidence-based intervention that uh, we can count on to save mom's lives during this critical period. And so again, I pride myself on being a data-driven, evidence-based policymaker. Um, I like to, you know, consult with the biomedical research and evidence, talk with my nursing colleagues and our physician colleagues to make sure that the, um, and community groups, obviously, that the legislation that we're putting forward has its roots in, uh, in the evidence that would, that would work to save mom's lives. And I think in this COVID era, we need to make sure that everything that we're doing is not um, just for convenience, uh, but that there is a clinical effectiveness that goes along with it. Um, and I think that there's some work still to be done um, in that telehealth space. Well, unfortunately, that's all the time we have for today. I'd like to thank Congresswoman Underwood and Christy Turlington Burns for being with us. It was wonderful hearing, hearing your thoughts and perspective. Thanks for listening. To hear more interviews from this series and other Washington Post Live programs, visit us at WashingtonPostLive.com.